I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. We're heading back to the 1970s for today's case, which is Peter Samuel Cook, better known as the Cambridge Rapist. Between October 1974 and April 1975, a series of horrific crimes were carried out in Cambridge. A man who came to be known as the Cambridge Rapist was on the loose, primarily targeting young university-aged women. And as if being a rapist wasn't horrific enough, the attacker took to wearing a mask as he carried out his crimes. It needs to be seen to be believed, but in an attempt to describe it, the mask was reported to be stitched from an old leather shopping bag. The zipper mouth mask had the word rapist painted in white across the forehead. Now, I'm not sure why you'd have a leather shopping bag. Was that ever a thing? I remember my nan having a leather shopping bag. Right, fair enough, okay. It's pretty I'm, old, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm mean, going back to the 70s, to be fair. But I was like, everyone's got carrier bags and bags for life these days. Didn't have those in the olden days. Did they not? They had to have a leather carrier bag. I remember my mum um, used to take a basket with her, like a proper old-fashioned wicker basket that goes over your arm, like Little Red Riding Hood style And she used to take that down to the local shops when she used to go get stuff. So I'm being able to carry the basket. So they have shopping trolleys in the 70s? I don't know. So... Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Not that we're getting off track or anything. <clears throat> and although I'm talking about the leather shopping bag, I appreciate I am ignoring some really other big aspects, such as why would you want a zip-up mouth on a mask? I don't know. Is that a BDSM thing? Could well be. Why would you write the word rapist across the forehead? It just seems like overkill. I'm not, and I never have been and never will be a rapist, but I suspect that if I were, I'd try and keep any potential evidence as low-key as possible you know, not writing stuff across the forehead of the mask. You'd think so. Yeah, I mean, it was the 1970s, another 40 years, and you do wonder whether he'd have neon signs over his head or an Instagram account, Cambridge Rapist. Yeah, the hashtag. Also, and we'll put a photo of this online on the Facebook group, he's put eyebrows on the mask. Yeah. That's just weird. It is very weird. Uh, looking at the mask, I mean, it would be absolutely fucking terrifying yeah. to see that coming at you let's recap his spree and i need to put a disclaimer here because whilst i was researching this there are a few discrepancies out there on various different sites about details and dates of events i've done my best to go with the most widely reported ignoring the pieces of info that just don't seem to fit but if you happen to know this case and some of the details seem slightly off that's going to be why and to give an example, there was just a couple of dates where they had a date either side of each other. And I don't know whether that's where the attack took place at night and it was either the evening or the morning. Yes. Stuff like that. It could well be. On Friday 18th of October 1974, in Springfield Road, Cambridge, a 20-year-old student who shared the house with four others had just gotten out of the bath. She was sitting on her bed watching the Morecambe and Wise show on TV when the light went out. As she fumbled in the dark for a candle a stocky man came into her room. Using a scarf to cover the lower half of his face, his appearance caused a woman to scream. Telling her to be quiet, and if she did exactly what he said, he'd do her no harm, the attacker told the terrified victim, 
quote, I've got a very sharp knife and one silly move and there will be a lot of blood, end quote. He then went on to ask, have you got anything I can tie your hands with? Pushing her to the floor, he bound her wrists together with a blouse from her wardrobe. He slipped a pillowcase over her head and then he raped her before fleeing the scene. Though not before having first robbed her of £12 from her purse. And bearing in mind we're going back to the 70s, £12 wasn't a small amount of money. No. Um, again, I tried to look it up online and I think he came out to about £100 worth. Yeah, that sounds about right. Is it still a fair amount for a student to well, have in her purse? That's probably her entire month's, well, on the rest, yeah. money. This was the start of a seven-month reign of terror by the man who would come to be known as the Hooded Rapist or the Cambridge Rapist. CID Chief Charles Nahn put together a special squad to investigate the rape at the Cambridgeshire Police HQ in Huntingdon. He noted because the attack happened in the dark, the victim's description had been vague. A man, aged about 20, fairly short, standing about 5 foot 4 inches tall. Unfortunately, just 10 miles from the scene of the attack is the town of Newmarket, famous for horse racing and the home of hundreds of jockeys, apprentices and stable lads, the vast majority of whom would have fitted that description. Three more rapes followed in quick succession. Less than two weeks later, on the 1st of November, another 20-year-old was raped in her home in Abbey Road. Once again, the victim first realised something was wrong when the lights went out. Getting out of her bath and putting on her dressing gown, the student went to the landing to call out to one of her flatmates. In the darkness, she could hear someone running up the stairs. Before she could react to what was happening, she got pushed to the floor by a powerful, stocky man. Trying to resist, her attacker forced a pad soaked with ether over her face and told her, shut up or I will kill you before he pushed her into her bedroom and tied her hands behind her back with a pair of tights. He then stuffed a handkerchief in her mouth in an attempt to keep her quiet. As he forced himself on her, the girl spat out the hanky and sobbed, You're hurting me! That's good, that's good, was the attacker's cruel reply, and after raping the young woman, he vanished into the night. Once again, the victim's description of the attacker was poor. She also said he was about 5 foot 4 in height, and again, in his 20s. Police were convinced that the attacker was the same man who struck a fortnight earlier in Springfield Road and warned single women to make sure their doors and windows were locked. Around a month later, on the 11th of November, a young Australian woman in her 20s had been ironing at home in Huntingdon Road when she heard a noise in the garden. Opening her door, she thought she heard someone scrambling over the fence. Reassuring herself it was most likely a neighbour's cat, she thought no more of it. But around 20 minutes later, the doorbell rang. The woman later told police, quote, When I opened it, there was a man standing there. He was wearing a light brown shoulder-length wig and a grey knitted scarf wrapped round the bottom half of his face. He wore a black leather jacket and black leather gloves. And apart from that, he was naked. End quote. Odd, isn't it? It's really odd. And uh, I did try to have a look to see if I could find out what the actual address was of the property so that I could have a look on Google Street Map to see how, how set back the house was to see if there was like a front garden that would give that, you know, that level of privacy that would make him feel confident to do that. But unfortunately, I couldn't find out what, what number. Huntington Road is a long road, isn't it's it? It's a so. very long road. 
and it's full of very mixed housing so I, I, there was no way to find out but i'm presuming there must have been some sort of hedge or fence that would make him feel safe because yeah. you wouldn't want to do that right on the street entrance like a terrace which well that's yeah that's exactly it and um I mean, I know it was 40-odd years ago, so it could have changed since then. But um, Huntingdon Road, Kate, it's not... I mean, it's a built-up area. It's a busy road. Mm. It's not a really quiet suburban road no. at all. Um, I mean, I presume that the, the noise in the garden must have been him changing, removing oh, his you know, trousers. I, I hadn't even thought of that. I yeah, presume I thought... he must have looked through, thought, yes, that's my victim, and then... I thought he, yeah, I thought it was him in the back garden scoping out the place. It yeah. never occurred to me he might have changed it. I presume so. I don't know though. Obviously, that's pure conjecture. The masked man launched himself at his intended victim, pushing her across the kitchen. The woman, in an amazing show of self-defence, picked up the iron and tried hitting him over the head. Nice one. Yeah. As he tried to defend himself by putting his hands over his head, she then kicked him in the groin. Point to note to anybody listening, especially young ladies, and I tell this to my kids as well, if a man attacks you, go for his eyes or go for his groin. Yes. Two guaranteed ways to stop someone. Definitely. And I think well done to her as well. Yeah. Grabbing the iron, going for it. Oh, I know. Stand down Robert Downey Jr. We don't need iron, man. We've got iron woman. (laughs) This was too much for the attacker who doubled over in pain before hurrying away. Just two days later, on the 13th of November, he struck again, though. Unfortunately, this time, he was more successful and more brutal. An 18-year-old student was in the soundproofed music room at Homerton College. Once again, the lights went out, as was his modus operandi. Do you like that? Take a bit of Latin, just slips in there. <laughs> I've no idea if it's right or not, but it's staying. It's correct. Yes! <laughs> Can't well, see me listeners, but I'm patting myself on the back. Well done. As she stepped into the corridor, a man leapt out at her, pushing a chloroform pad over her mouth and nose. As the girl struggled and screamed, her attacker told her, I'm going to murder you. He then forced her to the floor and said, I am not a murderer, I am the Cambridge rapist. He then placed a sack over her head and dragged her across a field and into a shed in the college grounds, where she was beaten up and raped. He must have known the area to know... Yeah. You know, where he could take them and stuff like that. Where he could like find that. a victim and where he could take them to. Yeah. And it does seem that he's getting more confident, doesn't it? As you're going really? through this, it seems like he's stepping up every he time. He's escalating very quickly. On the 8th of December, around 2 o'clock in the morning, the rapist entered a block of flats in Alston Road, Newnham, through a back door. A 21-year-old student was woken by a bright light being shone in her face. Holding a knife to her throat, the attacker dragged her roughly from her bed, taking her down the stairs and outside when he pushed her onto the lawn before using a pair of tights taken from the washing line to either tie her up or blindfold her, depending on the source that you read. The victim is told not to go to the police or that he would come back. And as he left, he added, The police will never catch me. I've got a car and I'll be in London before they can do anything. Mm. Which is a really odd thing to say. It is. The student later told police that there was no sound of a car, but she said that she thought she heard somebody riding away on a bicycle. Busy trying to throw the police off the trail there. Yeah. It's probably worth mentioning here, if you don't know Cambridge, it's full of cyclists. It is the UK's equivalent to Amsterdam in that respect. So someone using a bike as a method of transport, even at two o'clock in the morning, isn't as odd as it would almost certainly be anywhere else in the UK. It's got a huge student area. Yeah, massive, yeah. 
Chillingly, the victim also told the police that the rapist had mentioned her boyfriend's name. This led to detectives wondering if the attacker was someone she knew or whether he was researching his victims. One week later, on the 15th of December 1974, the sixth attack took place. Returning to the scene of his third attempted attack where he had been successfully chased off, this time wearing a false beard and a wig, the Cambridge rapist forced his way into the property and made his way upstairs. A 21-year-old woman in an upstairs flat was woken by having a torch shone in her eyes. Once again, the attacker put a knife to her throat before he tied her up and raped her. As she struggled to get free, her attacker slashed her body, leaving a wound that required 20 stitches. Unfortunately for detectives, the sixth victim was able to provide little in the way of new information about the man. With six rapes in two months, women in Cambridge were by now living in fear. With over 10,000 lodgings spread over 700 or more streets, and the majority of female university students living alone, either in bedsits or in halls of residence, it was a huge task for the police force to try and protect the rapist's obvious target group. Cambridge police drafted in officers from all over the UK to find the attacker. More than 100 plainclothes police officers were out on the streets at night looking for anything suspicious and trying to find a lead for the case. It's just like a needle in a haystack, though, in that type of area. Yeah, isn't it? You know, it's like in any sort of student city. Again, Cambridge is not a small place, so 100 sounds like a lot of people, but it's barely touching. 700 streets, that's one per seven streets. Yeah. Quick little bit of math. That's great. By now, detectives believed that they were hunting an experienced criminal, suggesting that he could be a skilled burglar who had turned to rape. They knew that the attacker was probably a local man. They knew that the rapist talked to his victims during the assaults and that his accent sounded local. Cambridge CID managed to eliminate a long list of local burglars from their hunt. Having taken swabs of semen from the victims, forensic scientists were able to identify the rapist's blood group as an O secreta. They also discovered that he was sterile. Good. At least he can't breed. In an attempt to reduce the number of suspects, all men who stood around 5 foot 5 inches tall were invited by police to provide a saliva sample so that they could be eliminated from their inquiry. Over 1,600 men in Cambridge and Newmarket volunteered, but no match was found. On the 3rd of December 1974, detectives visited a 47-year-old man by the name of Peter Cook, who lived with his wife in a caravan in the village of Hardwick, five miles from Cambridge. Cook was well known to police in the area, having a number of convictions for theft and burglary. He had spent time in both Dartmoor and Broadmoor prisons. After marrying in 1968, he appeared to have calmed down. Cook worked as a delivery driver for Dollamore Wine Company and often earned extra money as a handyman around the boatyards on the River Cam. And I know what you're all thinking. How tall was he? Well, Cook was five foot five inches tall, a similar height to the descriptions of the rapist, though more than 20 years older than he'd been described by several victims. And again, we'll put a photo of him up on the Facebook page. Mm. But I don't think he looks in his 20s, do you? No, nowhere near. I would definitely put him into his 40s. Mm. Cook gave the police convincing alibis for the time of all the attacks. As an aside, how the fuck do criminals do that? 
You could ask me to name one thing I've done in the past week and I'd struggle. I don't understand how criminals remember where they were at a specific time and date two months ago. I suppose that they're not asking you to answer it on the fly. They won't be sitting there going, no, tell me right now, where were you on Tuesday two months ago? But so you could always look back in like you know diaries or whatever or work records and see things there. I mean, nowadays, obviously, it's really easy because you just look at your Google timeline and go, oh, yeah, look. Oh, look, Google knows everything. I was everything. in Costa. <laughs> yes. It was like seven years ago. Oh, well, let me have a look. <laughs> exactly. And to be fair, no matter what, I'd probably be in Costa. Probably would be. Yes. Obsessed. Despite being a career criminal, Cook had no record of any sex offences, although police did find dozens of hardcore porn films and magazines scattered around his home. I love that description, scattered around his home, as though they're liberally spread everywhere. Do you fancy a cup of tea? There's biscuits on the side, under the main cupboard, next to the toaster, just by October's copy of MILF Monthly. Well, so I think he lives there with his wife as well, so I don't think I'd be that impressed with if you were leaving porn racks all <laughs> over the house. <laughs> so, my parents come round for a cup of tea or something, I'll just, just move that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Just move that porno over to... No, don't read it. I'm going, oh, your mum's taking a really interest in that magazine. She keeps looking at it. I don't know what's disgust in her face. Yeah, bizarre. Very bizarre. Cook refused to provide police with a saliva sample. Surprise. Stating that it was an infringement of his civil liberties. And why the fuck this isn't a massive alarm bell to police is beyond me. I know. I mean, I, I do think, I suppose, though, that... If he's had convictions already for various burglaries, he could argue that by providing that sample, will they just use it to rule him out from this rape investigation or will they then use it to have a look at all of the other burglaries that they have on file and he'll end up being done that's, for all those that's retrospectively. True, I mm. But 1970s, did they have that kind of technology and DNA stuff? It was all fingerprints. I don't think they did, yeah. I think it still would be. If... if Something like that had happened and someone came and asked me for a DNA sample, I, I would not have any qualms about providing it. Because mm. I'm not a, a criminal. massive criminal. Not a massive criminal. No. Just a small time. Just a tiny one. <laughs> I'm only five foot something. <laughs> he told police that they should either arrest him or clear off, stating that he looked nothing like a photo fit picture of the rapist. The police decided that they had insufficient evidence to charge Cook, but after the two attacks in December... He was put under permanent surveillance. The attack stopped for nearly four months. Was Cook their man? Or was it just the fact that the dates tied in with when students were away for Christmas? But although the attack stopped, graffiti began to appear on walls close to the scene of the attacks, simply saying, the rapist is back. There were also reports from women who discovered chilling messages written on their window in pink lipstick saying, sleep tight, the rapist. Was this alluding to the fact that the rapist was hunting for prey again, albeit unsuccessfully? Pretty terrifying. If it's a prank, it's really bad taste, to say the very least. I mean, it is the type of thing that you might end up finding some sort of studenty lads doing mm. as a prank. But, uh, yeah, it is a sick prank if it is. Yeah. But then two weeks after Easter, the Cambridge rapist returned, and he returned with a vengeance. On the 13th of April 1975, a 23-year-old receptionist was getting ready for bed when she heard a key in the lock of her front door of the home that she shared with three other girls in Marshall Road. With her three housemates away for the weekend, the victim was home alone, and she wasn't expecting anyone with a key to enter. She went to investigate. 
Fortunately, because of the attacks before Christmas, she'd had a safety chain fitted. Luckily, the chain held and she managed to force the door shut. However, when she tried to turn on the light, it didn't work. With no telephone in the house and being too terrified to call for help, she got into her bed, trembling. And I've got to ask, what would you do in that situation? Bearing in mind, it's 1975, so no mobiles or anything like that. I think in that situation, so in a house, somebody's trying to get into the house and I don't want them to come in, obviously. Um, I think I'd be shouting out the window upstairs. I think I would be in an upstairs bedroom. I would open the window and I would be fucking yelling my head off into the street in the hopes that a neighbour would come and help me or get the police. Yeah, or you might scare off whoever it is that's trying to get in. Yeah. I don't think I would just get into bed and hope that they go away. But I don't know. No, I don't. Not so having been part, in that situation. <laughs> part of me thinks that I might well do that. I might just go, oh, they couldn't get in. I'll just go to bed and hope that it's safe. Yeah. About 20 minutes later, a torch beam appeared at her bedroom window. It vanished, and moments later, she heard an almighty crash as the attacker threw himself at the front door, this time successfully breaking the security chain and gaining access to the property. Through the darkness, the victim saw the attacker, a man dressed in black leather, wearing a terrifying leather mask with a zip at the mouth and two eye holes. In white capital letters, written across the forehead, was the word RAPIST. She could see straggly beard underneath the mask. Pulling the mouth zip open, the attacker asked his terrified victim, Do you know who I am? I am the Cambridge Rapist. Working swiftly in the dark, he then tied his victim hands behind her back and pushed her under her bed covers. According to BBC News, the man spent several minutes talking to his victim, asking if she was willing to have sex and describing what he was going to do. He then raped her and left her naked, bound and gagged before she finally managed to raise the alarm about four hours later. The BBC reported, he has generally managed to keep his face hidden, but some victims said that they believed he was wearing a wig and a false beard. With his changing tactics, becoming more confident and arguably more violent, the police now feared that the rapist would go on to kill someone. More patrols, more inquiries and more investigations were launched, to no avail. On the 6th of May, in Pie Terrace, in the north of the city, the rapist struck again. Reinforcing his new confidence, this attack took place in broad daylight. It was lunchtime and the streets outside would have been full with workers from the nearby Pie factory on their lunch breaks. And I should just interject there and say it's Pie P-Y-E, as in the name of the street and the name of the area. I was just thinking that. <laughs> not a, not pie a pie factory. factory. <laughs> oh, that sounds immense. Mm, pucker pies. Another young female student had returned home in her lunch break to collect some notes. Hearing a noise behind her, she turned and found herself confronted by a man dressed in black leather. Wearing the same mask as before, he threatened her with a knife before slashing off her clothes using the razor-sharp knife and then stabbing her in the stomach. As he forced himself on her, he mentioned her boyfriend's name before saying, your boyfriend does this to you, doesn't he? He then fled the scene, leaving the traumatised woman bleeding on her living room floor, gagged and bound. I'm pretty sure that nobody's boyfriend normally stabs them in the tummy before uh, having sex with them. No, I agree. Mm. Maybe he wasn't talking about that bit, but I agree. Detectives decided to check the whereabouts of Peter Cook. They found him working at a nearby boatyard, 
and three colleagues told police he'd been there all day. A month later, there was one last attack. In the small hours of Sunday the 8th of June, the 28-year-old Canadian student was asleep in her room in the Alstonecroft Hostel when she was woken by the sounds of footsteps in the corridor. Getting out of the bed and opening the door, I've got to admit she's far braver than I would have been, she was confronted by a man dressed in black leathers holding a knife. She tried to shut the door, but the intruder lashed out at her with the knife, causing her to scream. The attacker, realising he was unable to gain access and alarmed by the scream, fled the scene. On the banks of the River Cam, 300 yards away, those same screams were heard by two anglers. They ran toward the hostel and one of them called the police. The police responded quickly, knowing that they had a large undercover operation in the city, an urgent radio message was relayed to every undercover unit. Stop everything that moves. In nearby Salwyn Road, Detective Constable Terry Edwards was one of those who heard that broadcast. Suddenly, he spotted a bicycle coming down the road, being ridden by a woman with long brown hair. The bike was an ancient ladies model, complete with a basket on the front and several carrier bags slung over the handlebars. Even though it was 2.35 in the morning, the bike had no lights and was being ridden in an erratic manner. Edwards stepped into the road and shouted, Stop! The cyclist swerved around him and carried on pedalling furiously, causing Edwards to grab for the rider. He caught her hair, which came away in his hand, revealing it to be a wig. By now, the noise had attracted local residents into the street. The cyclist, unbalanced by the lunge of the policeman, lurched the front wheel sideways and crashed to the ground. With help from the residents, DC Edwards apprehended the cyclist. Wearing a red coat and pleated skirt, closer inspection revealed the rider was a short, stocky man with short hair. He was quickly arrested and taken to the local police station, along with the wig and the items in the carrier bags. It was only when police searched the bags that they realised they had just caught the Cambridge rapist. In amongst the bags, police found a torch, a knife, a small crowbar and other assorted housebreaking equipment. There was also a homemade device for fusing lights and a bottle of ether and a cloth pad. If that wasn't evidence enough, another bag revealed a black leather jacket and trousers with women's lipstick and a black leather mask with the word rapist written across it. Detectives now understood why the rapist had been so difficult to catch. It was now obvious that he had travelled to and from his crimes dressed as a woman. It was only when he was close to his target that he would change into his black leather rapist outfit. He had figured that in Cambridge, where bikes outnumbered cars by three to one, the easiest way to get around unnoticed was by bike. Police surmised that their rapist had most likely pedalled past them after several of his attacks, but had been dismissed as a female cyclist. How frustrating that must that be if you're a police officer. You would be gutted, wouldn't you? Really would. The rapist was revealed to be... Peter Samuel Cook, a 47-year-old local delivery driver who'd been interviewed in December and had declined to give a DNA sample. Chillingly, on being caught, Cook callously told the police about the first rape, quote, I came to rob and stayed to rape, end quote. He went on to say that he had originally only intended to burgle the first property, but had unexpectedly been confronted with a young woman wrapped only in a towel where he then changed his mind. Prior to this arrest, 
Cook already had a lengthy criminal history as a prolific burglar and had served numerous prison sentences. In his youth, he had escaped from several approved schools. Do you know what an approved school is? I don't. Ah, I'm glad you said that, because I felt silly not knowing, so I looked it up. An approved school was a UK residential institution where courts could send young people, usually for committing offences, but sometimes because they were deemed to be beyond parental control. Apparently it's similar to former reform schools they had in the USA. Is it what they used to call borstals? Um, reading on, it was similar to borstals, and I think borstals replaced these. Nice. Uh, I mean, that could be completely wrong to get it from Wikipedia, but we're going to go with that. So, yeah, yeah we'll do. Thank you, Fair Wikipedia. <laughs> Cook later absconded from prisons on several occasions, becoming known as one of Britain's most wanted escapees. In a 2014 article, the Cambridge News said, quote, On one occasion, after being sentenced to five years in jail, he was being held at Shire Hall in Cambridge awaiting prison transport to Dartmoor and he managed to escape by squirming through a trap door in a ceiling. When he got a job as a scaffolder, workmates nicknamed him the Human Fly because of his agility. While on the run from Shire Hall, he wrote a letter to the news boasting that he had been back in Cambridge while police were searching for him and bragging, I am not worried now. Police, people, courts, nothing worries me now. End quote. It's probably at this stage that you're wondering why three people had told police that Cook had been at work all day on the dates of one of the rapes. Disappointingly, it seems that it was merely the fact that nobody noticed he'd slipped away in his lunch break that caused his colleagues to give him an alibi. And I've got to say that this infuriates me because no matter where I've worked, and I've had a few jobs, if I spent any longer than a couple of minutes just having a piss, people bloody noticed. I couldn't go missing for an hour and come back and no one know that I've been gone. Is that because you talk all the time? <laughs> <laughs> I do now. I didn't always. I used to be quite shy and retiring. Did you? Oh, yeah. Goodness. <laughs> As for the reports of the attacker having a beard or long hair, it turned out that Cook had glued false hair inside the mask to give his victims the impression he had facial hair and a shoulder length hairstyle. He was, in fact, clean shaven with a neatly trimmed crew-cut hairstyle at the time of his arrest. I find that quite terrifying that he's thought about it so much as to think, I'll make a mask and I'll glue hair inside it. Oh, he's properly gone for it, isn't he? He really has, considering he is claiming that he just fell into rape by accident. Yeah. <laughs> Cook did not explain to detectives why he had gravitated from burglary to being a sex attacker. On searching both Cook's caravan and a nearby workshop that belonged to his father, Detectives found a large collection of women's clothing, which Cook had stolen from his many burglaries, as well as a collection of long-haired wigs. Disturbingly, they also found 87 sets of keys hidden in a workbench. 87? 87, which he had copied. They believed them to be for the doors to several women's hostels, along with notebooks that held details of movements of at least two of the victims. Picking someone at random, Cook's job as a delivery driver had offered him the time to watch bedsits and to stalk his victims and learn their movements and habits, which explains how he was able to always pick a house where there was a lone female. Doesn't explain where he got all the keys from. He was a handyman. Right. He'd worked as a handyman as well, so do you think it's been one where, you know, if you have somebody coming to do a job for you, you, you might give them keys. a spare key. So if if these are um, like rented out houses or bedsits where yeah. they're just renting a room off a landlord and the landlord says, oh, Here's oh the key. God. Go in and fix the leaky tap. Yeah, and then he true. suddenly got the keys. That's the only thing I can think of, because it doesn't... 
nowhere does it really explain it thoroughly. But no, it's that's quite my, scary, isn't it? That was my assumption. Was that makes sense? Was that? Mm. It's believed that Cook had often broken into their homes when they were out, stealing underwear and items of personal mail, which also explains how he was able to know intimate details of their lives, such as the names of their boyfriends. This meticulous planning gave him confidence, and police believe that he would have killed a victim sooner rather than later if he hadn't been stopped. I can totally believe that, because that um, that last victim he'd stabbed yeah. in the stomach, that's a real escalation from, I'm going to steal £12, I'm going to rape someone, I'm going to threaten someone, and then I'm actually going to slash at someone with a knife. Well, as we said before, you can see it escalating, can't you? They're barging down the door and they're getting more confident with being naked on someone's door, or semi-naked on someone's oh, doorstep. I know. On the 3rd of October 1975, Peter Samuel Cook appeared at Norwich Crown Court, charged with seven rapes and two woundings. He pleaded guilty to all of the charges against him and received two life sentences. The judge, Mr Justice Melford Stevenson... Which is a real judge name, isn't it? Melford. really is. <laughs> he told Cook while passing sentence, quote, In your case, I am recommending that life in prison means exactly that. End quote. In 1995, moves were made to have Cook released either on parole or into open prison conditions. And that is terrifying, given it was 20 years after he'd committed it. Yes. The then MP for Cambridge, Anne Campbell, who lived in the city throughout Cook's reign of terror, was quick to object to and oppose these moves in Parliament. She described firsthand the fear that women in Cambridge had felt during his spree and went on to claim that Cook was still a massive danger to the public suggesting that he should remain as a Category A prisoner until his death. Now that's where having uh, members of Parliament who actually know their constituency yeah. properly is a, a real benefit for people living there, isn't it? That she, yeah. she can speak first-hand and say, yeah, it was really scary, don't let him out. Definitely. Her plea resulted in then Home Office Minister Michael Forsyth pledging that Cook would remain in prison until he was no longer considered a danger to the public. A year later... Cook applied for permission to receive a sex change, hoping that a new gender would increase his chances of release. As an aside, what the fuck? I know. I wonder if he's the person who first uh, came up with that idea. Yeah, possibly. The request was denied, and it seems that following this, Cook accepted that he would spend the remainder of his life in prison. As another aside? As a man? Yes. An odd way to finish the episode is with the mention of a t-shirt that was sold in the punk era by punk fashion designers Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood, which showed a version of the horrible mask worn by Cook with the words Cambridge Rapist across it. Despite being controversial, the shirt was a popular seller for many years. In fact, one of the t-shirts is retained in the collection at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Cook's crimes were also used as the basis for John Burnside's 2001 novel, The Locust Room. They have also been the subject of a TV movie. On the 9th of January 2004, Cook died of natural causes in Her Majesty's Prison, Winchester, aged 75. He had served close to 30 years inside for his horrific crimes, never expressing any remorse or explanation for his crimes. Yep, the location of his grave is unknown, although if it is ever revealed, you can expect to see a long line of people queuing up to piss on it. Yeah, I'm not surprised they haven't revealed the location. Yeah. Actually, I'm being flippant. I've no idea if his grave is known or not, but uh, I'm sure if it is known, it's not well, going to be worth it. not known to the public. <laughs> mm. 
And that's the case of the Cambridge Rapist. What are your thoughts? We discussed that we couldn't say for definite what we would have done if Cook had tried entering our home. How do you think that you would have reacted? And this is a case where life imprisonment meant just that. Do you agree with that? Let us know by emailing us. You can reach me, Dan, at sublimetruecrime.com And me, Elaine, at sublimetruecrime.com Or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, please click subscribe. That way you can be the first to know when a new episode is live on Sublime Sundays. Please join us again next time for another Sublime True Crime.